Welcome to episode 201 of No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg, joined by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Dobra vecher. How's your Russian evening going? You're in Russia. Uh, yeah, it's it's Russian morning. Um, it's oh. morning in Russia. Uh, it's about 3 a.m. here in St. Petersburg. And um, yeah, it's been great. St. Petersburg is awesome. I didn't know a ton of what to expect, but this city has absolutely charmed me. As you know, Ben... I'm not really like a sightseeing person or like a mm-hmm. tourist person. So, but uh, within like 48 hours of like being here, it definitely struck me that like, okay, you're going to be back. Whether it's for work or for pleasure, like as a tourist, whatever, you're going to be back because the city is is amazing. I, I would give big to massive thumbs up to St. Petersburg. Everybody should come. It's great. It's lovely. Even in this winter wonderland where I feel like I'm living in a snow globe, it's amazing. So. But you love that stuff. I mean, you've always enjoyed, like, picturesque winter. I know yeah. that from your past, like, trips to New York and stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I like cold weather. I don't I don't like hot weather, which is the ultimate irony in, in terms of my job. But, yeah, no, it's it's been lovely, and uh, everybody keeps making fun of me because I'm not as bundled up um, in this sub-zero weather as apparently I'm supposed to be. Like, I don't zip up my jacket, and sometimes I don't put my hat on and all this sort of stuff. But it, I don't – I actually don't think that it's that cold. Um <laughs> But uh, but yeah, no, it, it's been lovely. I'm looking forward to, especially as the, the tournament kind of winds down and we have more time during the day to kind of like walk around and explore to to kind of do that. But but yeah, it's been great. I've been I've been having a blast. Very cool. And um, and you hit the ground. I mean, like, I think when I was trying to discourage you from making this trip before. <laughs> ben was very I, anti-Courtney going to Russia. Um, I just I think that I underestimated your ability, your non really human ability at this point. To just sort of like get on a flight for 16 hours or whatever and then hit the ground running. 26 hours, first of all. Yikes. It was 26 hours from Melbourne to uh, to St. Petersburg, stopping in Doha. I was on the same flight as Simona Halep, mm-hmm. uh, leaving Melbourne and uh, Gabby Dabrowski. Um, so uh, leaving Melbourne to Doha and then Doha to St. Petersburg. Um, and yeah, I mean, if it, if if it was like a shorter trip, especially the day that I left, it was like 34 which is like a hundred degrees in Melbourne yeah. with like heavy humidity. Um, so if, if, if it had been a shorter flight, then maybe it would have been more of a, a, a bit of a shock. Um, but 26 hours on a plane and I don't know, you kind of get over it real quick and you step outside. I had a heavy jacket and, uh, and so far I don't sound all that stuffed up. Right. So yeah. knock on wood, we we're okay. You, you missed the worst. I mean, you were in town, I guess, on Sunday, but you missed the worst day weather-wise. It was disgusting. Which was Sunday. It was, it was disgusting. Disgusting. And we'll, and we'll start with, I guess we can start with this issue, um, to kind of get right into the tennis and the hot topics of the day to be all the viewer or whatever. People, people were seemed to be, I didn't understand this whatsoever. People were getting really salty about them closing the roof for the men's final and the mix, the mix final before it was at 4 p.m. Also, the roof closed. I understand if people want to say they should close the roof more often, but the, getting mad at the roof being closed when it was absurdly hot on that Sunday, as someone who was outside and in the stadium watching that final, I was like, why would anyone want the roof open right now? 
I don't get that whatsoever. Yeah, and and, and I just my... never under, I just never appreciate the sort of gladiatorial. No. Oh, the tennis is the ultimate test of you know strength and toughness. It's like no, it's not. It, no, it's, it's tennis. It's literally not. It's tennis. It's... Um, no, I, I felt the same way. I mean, I had I think the Saturday of the final. I mean, this is a very layman's way of describing this this situation. The Saturday of the women's final, I had gone shopping for my cold weather clothes for mm-hmm. St. Petersburg before the final. So I had been walking around downtown Melbourne. It was super, super hot. It was disgusting. It was gross. Um, Sunday, because I still had some shopping to do, I did the exact same route. Like I went back to the same mall and walked that same route and everything. It was way more disgusting and hot on Sunday than it was on Saturday. Yeah. Um, I, I, Well, no, I, I won't say that I understand the calls and, and rage that's... <laughs> that people seem to have about the fact that the roof was closed on Sunday. I mean, like, yes, the ladies had to play for two hours and 50 minutes in March. I mean, slightly cooler. And I don't mean cool. I mean, it was still hot and freaking yeah. hot as hell. Um, but the ladies played for two hours and 50 minutes. Uh, Simona Halep landed in the hospital um, yeah. <laughs> afterwards and all that. I don't understand the mo- the then desire from fans to be like, and the boys should have to do it too. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, no. if in two hours and 50 minutes, like, Simona Halep ended in the hospital, close the fucking roof and let them play, like, like a proper final. Now, that being said, like, I saw one tweet. I don't know if, if, if this has been verified, but I saw the tweet about how after that one year, as Ben knows, that was super crazy hot. Um, what was it? 14? Maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? 2014 was yeah, the worst 2014 year. Yeah, 2014 was the worst year where they made, like, Sharapova play against Karen Knapp. Uh, for like an hour in the searing heat and I got horribly ill that year in probably mm-hmm. the worst the, the sickest that I've ever been on tour um, or even just generally in the last like five or ten years apparently I, I don't know I saw I saw a tweet that like the, the tennis Australia actually raised the wet bulb threshold after that, that that'd be insane that I will say I like my takeaway from this if anything is they should lower the wet bulb threshold agreed 100%. Like, I, I think that it, wh- wh- I was sitting outside watching all two hours, 15 minutes of that Hallett match, and I was just sitting still, and I was just feeling, like, gross and, like, parched and, like, vaguely nauseous. You sweat and a lot, though, but... I, but I was... <laughs> but I also drink a ton of water. You do. You do. Fair point. Fair I'm, point. I've always said that hydration is 90% of journalism. Um, <laughs> that explains a lot for me. <laughs> it, it, <'cause> I, so <laughs> I'm constantly dehydrated. But yeah, but I would have liked for it to have been closed then. And I and and even I will say people, you know, point to the Malfis Djokovic match where Malfis was really struggling. That was a terrible match. Has conditions. I was outside a fair amount on that day. That day was it not wasn't bad. as bad. Not it was really close. a dry heat. Yeah. On that day. It felt like India um, Wells. Like not yeah. as dry, but yeah. a similar thing where if you were in the sun, you felt the sun. Yeah. So it was searing on your skin. But if you were in the shade, it was lovely. No, exactly, um, and so and so my takeaway would be, just sort of that. Like, if you want to, if you want to make it more humane and make it a lower cutoff for the wet bulb to close the roofs, I am all for that. I'm all for tennis being pleasant to watch and to play, and I don't, I just don't, I get no pleasure out of matches where it's like, let's see which guy passes out and throws up first. Well, or whose it, organs spill out of them first because who trained harder in the off season? Like, yeah, this is does, not does so little for me. This is not freaking american gladiator i'm sorry like it's tennis like we do not we do not tune in for that baloney but but this is like similar to 
um, you know, we hear this a lot, particularly at Wimbledon, this idea of like, this is an outdoor tournament. So even if we have to start a match and it's outdoors, knowing that rain will come and when that rain comes, we will close the roof and whatever, like applying the same logic. And I absolutely buy into and agree with what you're saying. Like, I'm like, no, if you know the rain is coming, freaking close the roof. Like, I've, no I've one. I've never, I've never agreed with the whole. It's an a- in outdoor tournament, no, like philosophy. Ever. It is a tournament where the goal should be to play matches in a reasonable time in optimal conditions. Yes. Or I mean, and, if, and if it's like, fair, I mean, optimal protect... within some range. Yeah, yeah, and to be fair and to protect the players accordingly. Like, I mean, yeah, this weird, you know, antiquity of like, oh, it's an outdoor tournament, so we should respect the outdoor nature. No. It's a if hybrid If it was an tournament. outdoor tournament and you respected the nature of the outdoorness of tennis tournaments and your slam, then you never would have invested $200 million to install a roof. There's a and reason why that roof. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a reason why that roof exists. Freaking use it. Like, zero fans are going to be like, oh, I really wanted to sit in, in, in 98 degree, 80% you know, humidity weather to watch these two people kill themselves. And now you're going to close the roof. Oh, give me my money back. Literally, no one will say that. No. Like, to the extent that, like, you are at a major and those sorts of conditions, whether it's heat or whether it's rain, is going to impact not only, like, the level of play potentially uh, on the players. You can set a wet bulb reading that's lower to, so that it's fair amongst the players. Like, that if that wet bulb is effect- effectively, you know... 95 degrees and 80% humidity that the roofs that the roof closes I think that's pretty fair based off of my you know uh rudimentary understanding of meteorology Mm -hmm. but like being outside and being like that seems reasonable but you know 98 degrees and 80% humidity seems really crappy I I don't know I I just I mean I've said this on the podcast and I've said it you know many times when we talk about best of five or whether we talk about like uh heat or um, scheduling or whatever, I do not think that tennis is a, you know, a dare a, a dare sport. It, this no. is not a sport where it's like, oh, this person won because, like, they're fitter. That's not, I mean, once you're talking about best of five or, like, putting people under extreme circumstances playing best of three, that all goes out the window. I think that's that's baloney. I, I, I obviously agree with all those obviously. points. And, and I also just think the other aspect of this complaints which we haven't touched on yet is there was some sentiment among some fans that oh this was special treatment for roger no because roger would benefit indoors i mean like, i Marin don't know maybe also i don't perfectly know. i don't yeah i just marin Chilch is a has one basel was like it's like pretty I, recently he's like not a bad indoor player at all he's a big server he's also probably a guy who i would actually put in worse can would hold up worse in extreme conditions in terms of heat than roger would in terms of being a big guy moving around and stuff, I would think he would feel the effects more. I, I, I thought none of the indoorness, except for the fact that he, for some reason, chose to practice outdoors that day, which he had all the same information that Roger had on what the weather was and what the conditions were going to be, and that the mixed final was currently happening indoors as he practiced. Like, that's on him, that he didn't practice indoors. Agreed. And I, I thought the exact same thing that you said. Like, I was on the way to the airport when all this was going down, but I just was, like, watching it, and I was like, I do not understand this weird knee-jerk, um, you know, analysis of, like, oh, the roof is closed, this favors Roger. That that did not ring true to me at all. Like, I was like, that doesn't make sense. Yes, Roger's a great indoor player, and, and, and historically... 
you know, in Grand Slam finals when that has happened, it has benefited him. But th- that has been against players that are not Marin Cilic. Like, the the way that guy hits the ball and the way that he is capable of serving. And, and you know, he took Roger to five sets indoors. Like, this idea of, like, oh, well, this is done and dusted. Like, the roof is closed and obviously Roger's going to win. That's bullshit. I'm sorry. Like, that's super lazy, reductive analysis. That That's just false against Marin Cilic. Like, if you want to say that... I don't Rafa, know maybe. against a it, it Rafa would, it would be a, or even Rafa's a not a good great indoor player. Yeah, or a Novak. Insofar as like those are counter punching players who are not going to necessarily benefit as much to, uh, a, you know, in a controlled environment. There's a better argument there. But when you but if he was playing Burdich, if he was playing you know Chilich, if he's playing, you know, those players that where that actually helps their game as well. That I don't know. I found that to be a very lazy, um, uh, I'm not going to say irresponsible because whatever, all sports journalism is irresponsible. I say that as a sports journalist, but I think that was more fans than journalists saying it was a Roger bias, though. Okay, yeah, well, I, if I it's think fans, so. I think I, it, it just struck I mean, me as sort of you know, fans of other players being butthurt about it. No, fair, so I mean, like Roger's I mean, getting it easy I mean, and complaining about his draw and whatever else, sure. I mean, which statistically, Roger's draw was the hardest of anybody, statistically, FYI. Um, mm, bringing stats. Yikes. I'm bringing in an- the analytics, baby. Um, but um, but yeah, no. I mean, if, if it's fans getting mad, fair enough. I mean, I don't really care because I am of the opinion that fans ca- are allowed to enjoy the sport and to opine about the sport however mm-hmm. way they want to. Um, if it was journalists, then that's irresponsible. Yeah. That's just dumb. Pretty much. So there, and it just, yeah. So all I'm saying is close roof. Let's get to Roger winning. We'll just do the men first. Um, Roger won his 20th Grand Slam, which is an enormous number. He And I don't think we thought he'd, certainly this time 14 months ago, would have thought he'd hit 20 by now. Um, but he and Nadal, to a lesser extent, even though it wasn't Nadal's turn, but they've just been like cleaning up at these last five slams in this way that, I don't know what it means, except for all I can think is like these guys are obviously still good, and Roger's playing really well at this moment. I think he's had a much better 14, 13 months, whatever, than Rafa has, um, or much more consistent in when he's played. But um, he he's just better than everybody, and nobody's like nobody of the other supposed contenders is really like challenging him. He got a sort of Burdich had an amazingly good tournament and. Roger thought that Burdich would beat him, which sounded ridiculous, but I actually thought that Burdich had a pretty decent shot in that match, too, because Burdich had killed Del Potro in the round before. And then he got Chung, who was hurt, and then he gets Chilich, who's had a good record against outside that one U.S. Open match. I don't, I don't know. Are, are things too easy for Roger now, or, or what do we make of him sort of running up the score at 36? I mean, it, it's it's to me, it's... And maybe this is revisionist. I'll, I'll, I'll allow that. I mean, I don't know okay. what I've said in the last, like, two years or three years about Raj. But um, to me, what is, at, as of this point, um, shocking is not that he hit 20, um, but the way that he's hit it. I mean, he lost two sets uh, en route to the Australian Open title, and those were both in the final, mm-hmm. um, again, indoors, against Marin Cilic. Um, it, you know his his runs in Wim- at Wimbledon and and Australian. I it just it shocks me that the gap feels still so huge between the field and Roger. I'm not saying that the gap is the same uh, between the field and Rafa, 
I yeah, think I don't that, think it is. Right? Yeah. But but the field and Roger, that's not supposed to happen. You know? I mean, granted, I mean, his draw kind of broke apart because of, of, of certain, you know, breaks and, and upsets and things like that. He didn't have to play Goffin. He didn't uh, um, have to play potentially uh, Djokovic um, if Djokovic had gotten mm-hmm. through Young Chung and, and Tennis Angram. But... Yeah, so so obviously the draw got softer as his as 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 things played out, but it still shouldn't be that big. Like if if you think about, for example, I mean I don't know. This is obviously open to debate, but you think about what the gap will potentially be between the field and Serena when she comes back. Not just when she comes back in her first tournament, but when she comes back at her peak. I think that that personally. I think that the ga- that gap will be far smaller than the gap mm. that currently exists between the field. Rafa is a bit of an outlier, but but between the field that currently exists and, and Roger, and that's just that's insane, man. That's crazy that you're looking it, at a, at a talented crew of young players, whether it's Kyrgios or Zverev or Team or you know Shapovalov Dimitrov. or Chung or Dimitrov. Um, Nishikori and Raonic who are injured, but but you look at that group and you see where Roger's at, and it, his run to number twenty just looked so casual. Yeah, up until no, the final, it, you know, it's tr- it's true, and I think this has like been the case for the last two Rafa slams last year too. Like those, the Australian Open, I think a lot of people played well at last year in 2017 Australian Open and they and both Roger and Rafa were at least evenly matched in that final even if it was a patchy final at times it had a good finish and um they looked no like one two will, no one I it frustrates me that nobody realizes that that final was not good <laughs> it was not good um, sorry it was not good I know I was I was sort of waiting for you to jump in with that thank you um <laughs> But yeah, but then I think I feel like the next four slams for them just came easy. I thought Rafa played incredibly well in Paris last year to get sure. number ten, but I thought Roger played really good. I mean, by Roger standards, we're talking about. I'm, not, I'm grading on the Roger curve here. Um, was like fine at Wimbledon when he won. Yeah, I thought Nadal was like never needed to be that impressive. And at the U.S. Open, he got a really easy draw. He played. He he pummeled Del Potro pretty well in the semis, but Del Potro seemed a bit out of gas and. And then the final against Anderson, which is a weird, really unsatisfying kind of anticlimactic match. It never kind of got going. I don't know. I, I and then and then Roger more or less is never threatened and against Chilich, and there's a really o- easy opening first set and a really even though it was five sets, it never felt that in doubt the result. Agreed. Except for like very early in the fifth set when I think Chilich had a break point in like the first or second game on Roger's serve. Um, outside of that, like it really never felt like it was out of Roger's hands. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that it doesn't reflect great on the younger generation that none of them are there. Obviously Roger and Rafa are generational, exceptional all time talents and that should be repeated and, and said, but I also just think that for some reason, the people who are supposed to be the next best. And I think, and also I should put Chilich in this category. Chilich has been kind of been very under the radar his whole career despite winning a slam um and now he's made two of the last three slam finals and he's number three and he's a very clear deserving number three even if he doesn't get anywhere near the hype the numbers four and five in dimitrov and zverev have gotten so he's in there and he's he feels like he's sort of making the most of his talent at this point but the other guys i i don't know maybe that's their ceiling at this point 
Zverev, I think, will continue to get better with age. Um, he's still really young, but I don't know. Maybe maybe there just wasn't anybody around. And, and Roger, it feels ridiculous to ever use the phrase vulture with Roger Federer, but he is getting, I don't know, easier pickings than you would expect him to be getting at 36. It just feels like, it feels mean, like the seas have sort of parted for him and, and somehow. Yeah, I mean, I, I would never say that Roger's vulturing. I think that, that Roger's an eagle and everybody else is just a bunch of rats at the moment. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not, yeah. yeah, he's not taking advantage of a shitty situation. He is doing what he does um, and benefiting from it. I, I think that, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just, uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I, I guess I'm just a bit disappointed in the gap. I mean, because we, you know, this conversation came up and we'll obviously talk about the women um, in Melbourne in a little bit. But, you know, there were many reporters in the room who were kind of saying like the last intriguing men's slam was at the Australian Open last year right because Mm -hmm. you got Rafa and Roger in the final and the intrigue of all that but the final was a bit of a dud um outside of the last set and I was kind of like making the argument to a bunch of different people like that's that's not because of Roger I mean like because we were talking about how the women have actually the women's side of the tournaments um, since the Australian Open, although I make an argument about the Australian Open last year, but uh, at the French, at Wimbledon, at the U.S. Open, have yielded far more intriguing results and, and more um, exciting matches and things like that. And which is a weird thing to say when you look back on the last 12 months and you realize that Roger and Rafa have won all the slams. Like, yeah, you know, the impulse is to say, well, if they won all the slams and they were amazing tournaments for the men, it's like, well, no, that's not true. Because what, what precisely what you said, which is that what they had to do to win the French uh, Wimbledon and the U.S. and the AO this year, I mean, it's impressive. I mean, I, again, I, I'm very hesitant to denigrate it and I'm not trying to denigrate it, but like saying, you know, talking about it from just a broader perspective, I mean, what exactly did they have to do other than beat Father Time? It is it is interesting that like even outside of NCR and our general soapbox on things and people know where we, we don't have a soapbox on that so but you know what I mean um, people at general press the mainstream media at the Australian Open was very down on the men's tournament and was like the women's yeah it was pretty so much better and that that was like a very consensus opinion I think the two semifinals really stinking kind of solidified that especially because they came stretch over two nights and. Those are the only matches you get for, you know, a sort of 48-hour period of those two men's semis. And when they both uh, didn't deliver, then people were really ready to sort of hand in a verdict. But, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what has to happen. I think that last year's Australian Open was really good for both. I think both tours had really good tournaments. Because Roger and Rafa both got pushed on the way to their finals last year. They both, you know, uh, Roger had two five-setters against Nisha Corey and Vavrinka and Nadal had a long one against Dimitrov and just and a couple other tough matches against Monfils and Ronich. Um, it was like a memorable tournament. I remember details of that tournament the ways I don't the later ones. As well, I remember them still because they're less than a year ago, but I won't remember them in the future. Um, I, I don't know. I it just seems like the men sort of need something to jolt. They need some somebody to catch fire and and, and maybe to maybe to Ostapenko. To just kind of shake things up, to use Ostapenko as a verb. I, I don't I think know. That... I mean, I feel like 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 Del Potro was the Ostapenko 
of that generation in a lot of ways. And, um, I just, I just, I mean, I think that the men's tour is hurting with the, I mean, as much as, as much maligned as these, uh, these two players I'm about to mention are on this podcast, but, but the, it needs a Rownich. It needs a Kaney Shikori. Um, in terms of just being veteran players who have proven that they can do the five set thing and go deep and to have, and, to have a Vavrinka type breakthrough. Yeah, you need you need Stan in the mix. Obviously, everything or them even just I was just saying even for Ron and Trichikori to sort of follow that Stan model and become sure. a major winner at twenty nine and then hang around, you know. But they have peaking but, late. Yeah, but they but they have to be part of the mix, and I think that right now, like if you look at the men's tour, who's in the mix? Roger, Rafa, Grigor, maybe, obviously Chilich. Okay, Gafan. Yeah. Uh, Zverev, Zverev, who hasn't beaten a top fifty player at a major. Um, gosh, all these all these receipts you're bringing to the table. I only just gosh. read that in John Wertheim's fifty parting thoughts, um, and I found that to be stunning as a set. That um, and and I was on the radio um, uh, for BBC. With Bruno Suarez, and um, we were ta- and we were watching the the Zverev um, Chong match, and Suarez was like very explicit because everybody was kind of asking him like, "What is it with with Sasha? Why can't he replicate obviously the res- the results that he gets on tour at the majors?" And, and Bruno was very honest, and he just said, "You know, the weirdest thing about it all is that it's not like 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 Zverev is getting stopped like he's doing well and then getting stopped in the quarters or semis uh by the players he's supposed to lose to like the the Rafa he's not playing Rafa or Fed or those guys you know not the usually, yeah. he's losing the players that he routines at the at the at the tour level and that's yeah. that's a big red flag and granted he's young and he'll figure it out and like whatever but but in and I do believe that um, same with Young Chung and, and those guys, they'll, they'll figure it out. But that doesn't mean that in the moment, like right now, who, who, who's, who's supposed to stop Rafa and Roger of, 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 of cleaning the table for the rest of the, 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 the year. I don't see anybody maybe, that's close. Maybe just honestly, maybe just the rest of the tour has to hope they get hurt because I don't know if they're stop getting stopped traditional ways. I mean, and Rafa, Rafa's had a bunch of injury issues lately. Just pivot to him a little bit. Uh, he pulled out of London after playing in Bercy to lock up the uh, year-end ranking, number one. He went to London and, and played one match there and was clearly hurt against Goffin and then pulled out. Um, he seemed to be he, – he retired from his quarterfinal match with injury early in the fifth set. It didn't seem to be a severe injury at all. Um, this uh, grade – it was diagnosed as a grade one sprain something of grade one hip. grade one which what does that mean for people who don't know courtney you um, have your physio background <laughs> my physio background it is it is obviously the lowest level of and, and not to diminish it at all I'm, I'm sure it was painful and i'm sure that but um i have definitely seen and and been around players who have played through grade threes and grade twos um and again, like I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not denigrating it at all. Like he freaked out and, and it hurt and et cetera. But um, he's going to make a, a pretty quick recovery um, after AO and, and be okay for whatever tournaments he's playing in the Middle East or Indian Wells or whatever. Or I don't, I'm not going to pretend that I know what Rafa's schedule is. I think his schedule is Acapulco and Indian Wells next. Cool, man. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> um, but uh, 
yeah, I mean, obviously, as Ben knows, I have I have very strong thoughts about his comments after that match. But go ahead. No, I was going to get to that. So what his comments after the match were basically saying sort of it was kind of hitting classic Rafa bingo spots, um, <laughs> blaming the schedule and the surface. Right. And yeah. saying that the sword needs to look into it. And Courtney, let's hear your thoughts. I don't know if we actually talked about this that that time. Oh, really? And, I, oh, I feel like I've said it a lot to to other people, I suppose. But um, the thing about it is that I would understand Rafa's um, complaints about the schedule and about having to play so much and on, on surfaces he doesn't like to particularly play on that um, have a severe impact on his body, namely hard courts um, and things like that if he was 10 years younger. Um but the fact of the matter is with Rafa Nadal and, and as with Roger Federer and Stan Wawrinka, I think as well, um, a bunch of players who are, who are 30 and above, is that once you hit a certain like set of milestones, and I can't remember what the ATP rule is, it's age and number of tournaments you've played and number of wins you've had, like some, some sort of combination of those three things, which I know for a fact Rafa uh, um, uh, qualifies for. But once you, you hit a certain threshold you no longer, you know, we we talk about how, um, you know, uh, ATP Masters 1000s are mandatory tournaments. And mm-hmm. on the women's side, there are, there are four premier mandatory tournaments that, that all players, regardless of their ranking, are do have to play. But if you do hit that threshold, you are subject and available to an exemption where you do not have to play those tournaments, where you can absolutely 100% pick and choose where you play. And so it's a weird, because of that, and, and Rafa can make himself available of this, it's a weird thing to sit there and to kind of hear Rafa complain about the grueling schedule, a grueling schedule that does not apply to him. If he wanted to, he could skip the entire grass court season. If he wanted to, he could skip a majority of the hard court season. He could skip Asia, you know, these hard court events that, that kill his body. He could... He could choose between Indian Wells and Miami. He doesn't have to play both. Yeah. Okay? So he doesn't have to play ATP Masters 1000s, even though they're mandatory tournaments. So it's a bit hollow, then, to complain. Now, the complaint comes from, you know, people raised with Rafa. Uh, well, you know, Federer skipped the entire clay court season last year. Mm-hmm. Why can't you do that? And my understanding from Rafa is that, that his response is like, no, but I have to play to be good effectively um, and to be confident and whatever. And this is, you know, a conversation that we've had about Rafa for the last 10 years, Uh, you know, since he was 18, he burst out on the scene, like the way that he plays the sport is is not sustainable, right? That that's why there have always been questions about whether or not his body could endure the way that he, that the way that he plays, that is what is frustratingly amazing about Roger is that, the way that he plays, he can do those things. Yeah. And that is his benefit. And he's allowed to take advantage of it. And if Rafa can't take advantage of it because he has to play a full clay court season because he has to need all the points because he cares about number one, like Roger doesn't care about number one. If he cared about number one, he would have adjusted his schedule accordingly. He would have played, he would have actually entered like Rotterdam right. coming up and like gotten those points and taken over because actually he has a ton of points coming off soon because he won Indy Wells Miami back to back. So he's a pretty small window in this February where he could sort of poach that number one ranking. Um, and he could, I think he could get it maybe if 
Rafa loses early in Acapulco because Rafa made a final there last year and lost to San Quarry. Um, and that's so savage. It, it was so 2017. I'm just saying it was, it was <laughs> one of the more shocking results. So I will, I will always remember that. But um, yeah, I, I with Rafa, I have I have limited sympathy for those reasons you mentioned also, and then just like the way he plays the game. It's this intentionally like more gru- it's like on Oregon Trail, he's not being nice to his oxen. You know? He's making them go like really grueling at all times. Yeah, and like, for those of standing- us who play video games, that's a great example. For those of us who play video games, like you know you have like a meter of like strength. Yeah. Right? And if you go super hardcore in the first like third of the mission that you're trying to accomplish and you're like in the red for the rest of it, that's on you. And, and, and he, he does that even within matches with how he starts off by returning with his butt against the back wall, like way behind the baseline, like out of camera frame, like and then starts points that way and has to like run into the court every point to get started. Like that's on him for like putting making new mountains for him to climb. He's not being an economical player whatsoever. And so that he his budget runs out faster than others is is on him, I think, largely. And then also the other thing I'll say and this goes to Djokovic, too, and this goes to Andy Murray. As much as I sympathize with these guys who are hurt, like, they are in their 30s. This is kind of the natural life cycle for an age, for an athlete. How dare Ro- you? Ro- Roger is the exception. Gotten lucky, but, like, or got whatever luck, whatever you want to say, whatever Roger's Rogerness is, it has let him keep being great this long. Um, if you start to break down and can't beat your physical best, when you're in your 30s and, and Rafa's turning 32 in a few months. That's, like, the, natu- that, that's the natural progression that's of things. That's the natural progression of things. And especially when you won your first slam at 18. You started early. You're not young. Yeah. That's and and, and, like and I just think that, like, I mean, there are a bunch of things that I just kind of was like, eh? Like when I read the, the Rafa transcript afterwards. and but, but additionally, like this whole idea of like, oh, you know, the, the governing bodies have to be you have to think of us because there's life after tennis and we're killing our bodies. And I mean, maybe this is a very American perspective of it, but the language that he was using and kind of like the seriousness of it all was like how like football, the NFL football players talk about like CTE Mm -hmm. and concussions. And I'm like, okay, Rafa, like Novak, Andy, you've been a professional tennis player. You have made millions upon millions of dollars over the course of a, 15-year career. Yeah, it might hurt to get out of bed, but we're not talking about your brain being scrambled. We're not talking about, like, you're not going to be able to live your life. Like, it might hurt a little bit to reel in a fish when you're 50, but that's kind of just how life works. I mean, I don't know. It's this is weird. It's this weird sense of entitlement as though, like, you're supposed to feel how you are at 32 is how you felt when you were 18. And that doesn't make sense at all. And there are tennis players who have, you know, I think like Boris Becker's had all sorts of hip issues later in life. And some players have various knee issues. I know like Billie Jean King has had knee issues or even during her playing career that have kind of continued. Uh, As we saw in Battle of the Sexes. Adult life, yep. And they're icing the knees and bringing yes. that, that scene where they walk around that circular hotel that was really good like production design whoever found i that, really like, like circular that yeah like the whole uh, circular thing the meet up and yeah yeah um ice for scene. her knees yep sure um and yeah so 
I'm just sort of rambling here. Like, I don't want to, no, I don't yeah. want to feel like, because I, I really don't feel like I'm intending to, like, hate or, like, bash or, like, whatever. I just think that the arguments, like, I don't know, people can absolutely, and I'm sure that I'll get totally shouted about on this um, in the way that I've, I've discussed it, but I just kind of feel like if you look at it objectively, it just doesn't rationally make sense. This idea that, 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 that things should be the way that, I don't know, uh, that there needs to be more clay tournaments or fewer hardcore tournaments and players are supposed to be able to feel as healthy as they are and at 40 as they do at 25 years old. That's just like weird. I don't know. It, yeah, it, no, I, not, I think, I, I think, I, I think it. there's, I think there is an entitlement to it and obviously some sort of. Uh, you know, sadness and bitterness at losing and, and not feeling like you're you're physically best, and it's not easy getting older and breaking down. Don't also, I know it? Also, also people <laughs> people have. Uh, first of all, Lucy Safarova does not think you're any older. And secondly, oh bless um, Lucy. There's a reason why she wins awards. Can you, can you tell that story quickly? Probably, oh, people won't. People won't so Ben's an idiot, um, and uh, we were both. <laughs> Doing it in an interview for Lucy Safarova, I was doing a one-on-one, and then Ben was waiting to do his one-on-one. And I don't even know how it came up, but at some you point... You mentioned something about... You said you said you just had a big birthday. I did. I said I just you had a big birthday. And Ben, like, literally, like, shouts <laughs> out, like, do you know who, how old Courtney is? Like, you should ask her. Ask Guess, 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 guess. And I was like, oh, my I God. I sounded exactly like that, by and the You way. sounded exactly like that. That was eerie. literally a recording of Ben in that room. And uh, and Lucy said that I didn't look over thirty, which was a very. Kind it made thing you happy. I knew I was. I knew it would work out well in the end. No, but I Ben, I know that I don't look over thirty. I know that. Like that is, but it doesn't mean that like I'm not over thirty. Like <laughs> by a large margin. That's not what I, I wasn't saying. You're not. I'm just saying. You know. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Um. Yeah. So that was that was Rafa. Um. That was we haven't gotten to. Um, the other side of the draw, and I'm not really sure how to gracefully transition from any of that to Tennis Sangren. Hey, oh. Mm. <laughs> I thought you were going to go into the girls, so I was going to be like, hey, oh, ladies, no. and then you mentioned Tennis Sangren, and I was like, never mind. Yeah, no. Uh, so, yeah. Um, hmm. I spent, it's been a, it's, a lot of this has sort of subsided. It was, I was very um, caught up in the whole Tennis Sangren thing that was going on, Uh a couple weeks ago when it was when he was still in the tournament and making his way through the tournament and had let's start off by first saying an absurd tournament the tennis stanker made the quarterfinals so the australian open made no sense on paper whatsoever if you're he mad had, about it be mad at stan Wawrinka. be mad at stan Wawrinka. for playing dude was not fit enough to play a full tournament he knew coming down that he could not win this tournament he played he could barely walk through his first round and then he gets tennis sangren he can't move he can't move. He yeah. made tennis look like he was like a freaking ten, top ten player. Yeah. And then so and then, and then, then Sangre won two more matches. He beat uh, Maximilian Martyrer in yep. the third round, and then he beat Dominic Team in the fourth round. And Team just did not play a smart match at all. But tennis tennis played. Oh, Sangre. I have to keep saying Sangre. I can't use tennis as a standalone name. Agreed. Sangre played really well. I mean, he he he's always been really fast. He was used to be much more of a retriever. Uh, he is hitting his backhand really well, kind of going backhand to backhand with team very successfully, which was impressive. 
um, and team played kind of passive to Clay Cordish on a pretty fast hard court and didn't assert himself as much as he could have in that match. Anyway, all of that is not why Tennis Sangren was a sort of leading story at the Australian Open. It was all because of, or pretty much all, because of his social media history and um, various views he has espoused or endorsed or amplified, amplified, to use your word, or sort of just generally played footsie with on Twitter. I'm not really sure how to describe some of the interactions he's had. Um, Courtney, I guess, I, I, I know you have sort of ways of couching this that are much more direct and better than I do. So I guess, why do you think the Tennis Sankran stuff was uh, problematic and, and worth talking about? Because that was one of the questions early on in the tournament as he started making a bit of a run. Like, is this Twitter stuff relevant to his tournament? Um, is it relevant to his tournament is very different than the broader question of as or is it relevant to covering relevant. him as an Australian Open player? Fair. You know okay. I mean? Yeah. Those are, those are two different things. Um, look, I mean, I've, I'll say it out front. I mean, like I understand the difficult position that Tennis Sangren found himself in because I've been in it. I mean, I've, I've few people know, if not many people know, like I've, um, been as, as not as guilty, I'm not going to say that, but guilty of, of putting things on social media that, that, that I thoroughly regret that were offensive, that, um, I have absolutely every responsibility to apologize for, which I have. And, mm-hmm. um, and because of that, I feel like maybe my insight into the whole situation is a little bit different because, you know, a lot of people who are criticizing him, or writing about him have obviously never or don't feel like they've been in that position. So look, I mean, I am very much of the, of the position that, you know, what you write, what you put on social media, you, you absolutely have to be held accountable to. And that doesn't mean you don't get to say it. I mean, I fully believe in free speech. If you want to say whatever the frick you want to say on social media, you're, you're welcome to say it. But if there are consequences to that, there are consequences to that. And we understand, especially in the States, that we live in a current, you know, um, climate and and time where, I mean, let's not pretend that we don't know which way the flag is blowing, you know. So if you're going to if you're going to tweet, you know, homophobic or uh, things that may be considered homophobic or things that may be considered racist or things that may be considered you know, alt-right and very offensive to, you know, um, minorities um, that feel attacked by you, then if they want to shout you down, they have every right to shout you down just as much as you have every right to say whatever the hell you want to say. Um, and if that and I, and then... I, and I, think, I think on that, you're amplifying word choice earlier is key. Right. Not and, all yeah, of them were all I will get to that. direct things he tweeted in his own words. 100%. 100%. And, and so, and to the extent that, like, then the reaction to that um, from those groups and the and their allies who who feel like you've done um, an offensive and problematic, um, and I'm saying this all in very conservative terms. Like I'm not trying to paint him as some, I don't know Tennis Angrens. I've never had a conversation with him. I do not know who he is. I do not sit here and judge his heart or whatever. All I know is what he's tweeted, what he said, um, and I judge based off based off of that. Um, if people shout you down and raise this and therefore elevate this issue to journalists, to, you know, other people that might care, like, don't go whining about it. Like, that's 
absolutely their right and that is the consequence of the thing that you did. Um, and if that's a lesson learned and you go forward and you realize, oh shit, I can't say whatever the F comes to mind on social media, then lesson learned. And, and then you, um, you know, alter your behavior, you, you, you learn from it and you try to be a better person and, and be the Christ-like figure that you, 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 you try to represent yourself as. Um, and that's fine. But, you know, and I, I've had this conversation with Ben and a few other people, like, I've seen all the tweets and I've seen, you know, what he's being called out on. Look, like, if he's not a Serena Williams fan, that is not yes. a reason to, to, to hate him, like, or to think that he's a bad person. Like, it, it's, it's okay to not love Serena. It's, it, that's not, like, I, I found I, that to be, like, the least um, convincing anti-Sangren argument. Like, I found that I thought that argument was so bad that it like that because that was what people who were defending him and I talked to a couple of players, a couple of whom were sort of, were sort of had tweeted in support of him, um, or at least sort of being like, "What's the big deal?" Because those guys saw the anti-Serena like backlash and were like, "What? He's not allowed to not like Serena." And when you like when you're trying to form like a cogent argument or you know trying to build an argument against somebody, the Serena stuff just did not hold up to pressure whatsoever. No. I mean, and I th- and I, and maybe and if you want to say, if you want to imply that it's representative of some larger worldview of his, like okay, but know that that is a reach. And I, I'm also, sorry. One of the one of the tweets was him being excited that Sloan exactly beat Serena, and that he wanted Sloan to go win the title. I'm sorry. There's no way you spin that into being racist. That exi- that that's individual not to say tweet, he's that's not just, or is or whatever. Right. But like based off of the four corners of that of of his series of like. Serena tweets, and obviously, as, as you pointed out, like, you know, one of the ones that got completely taken out of context was regarding Serena doing what Coco Vandaway did um, at the Australian Open. And got a $10,000 fine for it, And yeah. got a $10,000 fine for it, and when Serena did it, she didn't get a $10,000 fine, but of basically yelling an invective, a, a audible obscenity, clearly, towards her opponent. Which other WTA players were upset at at the time. Yeah, I remember so clearly. so that that to me was a very weak and and dumb. That is not as as a former litigator. Um, that is not a position that I would have picked as being a reason to go after him. I mean, no. I think that um, you know Serena, where Serena's an athlete. Serena has to be, you know, well, for lack of a better word, like fair game for people liking and not liking her. But in in, in the same way, like if you want to call him out on it, that's absolutely right. Like it's fine. I mean, it, yeah. it, but it's not inherently four corners like this thing that is like an inherent character flaw. That thing. No. Um, where I felt like things crossed the line, and where I felt like the criticism was fair, and where I felt that that elevating things to kind of a national level and um, quote unquote, starting a conversation um, was justified. Is 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 him amplifying alt right, you know, articles, viewpoints, and voices? Yeah. Like we can all sit there and we can say, like, look, like you can sit there and say he's homophobic because of his tweets about, you know, eyes bleeding because he went to some gay club or something. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, sure, yeah. And, and I'm sympathetic to that 100%. Um, does that, to me, honestly, like, trigger some thought of, like, he's a terrible person or he did a, a terrible thing wrong? I wouldn't have tweeted that. But I can understand a straight guy accidentally going into a gay club and being like, yo, this is not my thing. Um, not everybody has to, like, you know, 
Um, you don't have to then tweet about it saying your eyes were bleeding. But yeah. Right. Yeah. No, for sure. Like I said, like the tweet is bad. But and he and that's and that is the one individual tweet. It he is the one thing for. he's apologized for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But to me, the thing that I feel like is justified in absolute criticism is is the amplifying of you know right. PizzaGate of of um, alt right opinions of Fuentes guy. Yeah, yeah, the Fuentes. Yeah, the Fuentes retweet. I think that's enough. Like everybody wants to make it about all these other things. Like to me, like four corners, like retweeting Nicholas Fuentes. Is enough. Just leave it, was it at during that. The tournament like that, he did that yeah, too. during yeah. the tournament, which is recent, like that is enough to nail him as doing something that is, to me, unquestionably terrible. Um, and something that that to me, he can apologize for the, you know, homophobic tweets and everything like that. But like that to me is something that I don't think that he's answered for. And like I said, like I I come to it as I've talked to Ben offline about, and, you know, I come to it from a place of like, I absolutely understand being stupid on social media and, and saying things that are going to haunt you for the rest of your career. And either you can try and wipe the slate clean, which is what he's tried to do, um, and try to rebuild a new thing. And hopefully he, he does that in terms of like proving with his conduct and with his words that he's not the person that people think he is. Um, great. Um, my tactic with respect to that was if this haunts me for the rest of my career, that's fair because it's terrible. And I'm not going to like delete it and pretend that it didn't happen. Different strokes for different folks, but um, I don't necessarily feel like he has actually reckoned with what he's, I don't think that he understands what is the severity of what he's done. I think that a lot of that or not a lot of that, but part of that has to do with the reaction to it, that it was so diluted with crap that actually he doesn't necessarily have to apologize for with stuff that he does have to apologize for. Yeah. You know? And I think that's a bit of a failure amongst whether it's journalists or fans or social, you know, like whatever it is. But um, I do yeah. think that he's done things wrong. I think that the, you know, probably... 80% of what he's being accused of. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I, I, uh, I don't know. Not agree with. That's not true because I do agree with it. But it's fair, I suppose, is, is the yeah. right word. And, and, and I, that's sort of why I was talking to people afterwards. I was like, there's plenty of, there was plenty of unfair stuff in there that he got that he didn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily a fair, whatever, fair shot to take at him. But there was enough fair stuff in there. Yes that got that it makes it fair enough to be an issue. And I thought that the and I thought that in terms of how media handled it when Simon Briggs asked him his first question about it after he beat team and was had his points very lined up and talked about Fuentes and talked about Pizzagate or whatever and had sort of receipts um and different things to point to. I thought that was all handled well. And I thought generally the media, even though he came out with this and this is where he sort of clearly mishandled it i thought his first answer was when he sort of burst out laughing when it first happened that wasn't great in the team press conference but i guess he was just sort of stunned by it being brought up um but then when he read his like uh his, diatribe his diatribe at the start of his next press conference that was just sort of a, a bizarre note to hit and to attack the media for it um when i think that honestly nobody who's in that press conference room had treated him unfairly absolutely and, it, all, uh, any unfairness he might have sensed from social media was coming from fans and, and they're, they have their feelings and press them how they want. But I thought that the media itself, once once the sort of 
fire got lit did nothing to irresponsibly pour gasoline on it anyway that was unfair uh to him uh we'll see how he responds to it then and, and you mentioned courtney you never spoke to him i have met sangrim before um i did a story sort of general fluff story that kind of had to be done i felt like on his name when he first played a slam just oh the guy who plays tennis named tennis and i had some sense of his um political leanings i just knew that he was like a clearly a trump supporter i had never gone through and like targeted search words you know people the way things people did for his uh twitter to find the most problematic stuff i hadn't done that when i talked to him before because it didn't seem like it was necessarily i i don't know i didn't know what was in there and i didn't think that was necessarily my place to excavate fully before doing a story on his name but um i thought i thought he does he is a guy who comes off very well and very personable and very likable and i think that's that and when players have stuck up for him that's been their experience with him and that's what they're sharing and i think that can be true and also all the very problematic things about him can also be true and yeah people i think people have a people have a hard time wrapping their heads around that which i understand because you don't think of people holding, you know, what like sort of people you think of having as various problematic or even monstrous views. You don't think of them walking around being likable guys. But that, but, but it, can, it can happen. I mean, at least stateside, though. I mean, you and I have had this discussion before, offline. You know, obviously not tennis related, but that is the that is the America we live in at this moment. That's all those stories right? in the New York Times that get criticized about, you know. Oh, look at this neo-Nazi, and I'm not calling tennis singer neo-Nazi, but look at this neo-Nazi, yeah, the, the, about neo-Nazi who does story. mundane things like going to Target or whatever. Well, and 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 the, you, that might, that's you like and a I stupid story, but that is a real time, about thing. the khakis and white shirts marching on, uh, you know, North Carolina. Is that the whole point of things these days? Is that it's not, not that it's not clean cut, because if that's what you think, if you if you are alt right and a neo-Nazi, then you're an asshole, regardless of the fact that you buy Gap jeans or whatever. <laughs> um, and give people firm handshakes. Like, I don't really give a shit. Like, you're a terrible human being. Um, but um, but that but that is the world we live in. And, you know, there is nuance. And, and to the extent that, like, players that people respect or don't, whatever, like, come rallying to his defense, um, you know, it that, that, that also speaks, you know, to him and, and the way that he's treated people, you know, recently. And, th- and that's why I say, like, honestly the thing that sticks out to me is the retweeting of fuentes during the tournament like that's a contemporaneous reflection of what goes on in his head um and he can disavow it and he can do whatever i mean the dude then like tweeted about tennis angren and was like oh "Oh, my good it was a big deal for fuentes to get the retweet from the australian open quarter finalist absolutely that was a huge legitimization of fuentes and he he loved that that yeah yeah and that's where I have, you know, that's where for me, like, I'm just like, nah, dude, like, until you answer for that stuff, like, I don't really care about all the other stuff. Like, you know, like, you know, I have my members in my, my family that are homophobic. Like I, you know, you, you work through it, you deal with it, you try and convince them you can have those conversations, you can work through it. But to the extent that like, you're retweeting like propaganda and I, and I still, I mean, this sounds funny, but I still kind of like, my my take on Sangren through through much of the tournament was like I'm sorry, but somebody who fell for Pizzagate is not somebody that I take seriously intellectually. I don't really care about the other stuff. I'm like, oh wow, you're stupid. Like that's just my that's just me. Like you fell for that. Like you genuinely thought that happened. Then the rest of it doesn't matter to me. Yeah, because pizza, you're yeah. inebriated in the brain. <laughs> and that's, that's the intellectual coastest of me. 
to, to, to judge it on that level, but that's how I feel. I mean, my I grew up like two or three blocks from Comet, Comet Pizza <laughs> in DC. And like, you want to explain what Pizzagate is so that not oh, Pizza might Pizzagate, for people it, who don't know, people have who asked me lucky about enough it, so. not to encounter Pizzagate, was a conspiracy theory that some guy who was a donor of Hillary Clinton was involved in running a child sex ring. I think with Hillary's like blessing or like involvement, maybe she was a silent partner. I'm not really sure what her alleged involvement was in running a child sex ring out of a pizza restaurant, uh, a ping pong themed pizza restaurant. I just feel like I should add uh, in, in DC. Um, yeah. And it just, it, it just made no sense at all. It's I mean, it was, so... it was, there was zero evidence of it. Um, at some point where it became sort of the like clearest fake news story, a guy who was a believer in Pizzagate showed up with like an assault rifle to like free the children and to investigate himself. America. America. And he like shot a bullet into the floorboards or something, which didn't hurt anybody, but was still like, <laughs> why? Um, and uh, yeah, so that was a whole big thing at the election. It just sort of showed like how internet lies rumors can like take flight. And what Sangram specifically said in his tweet about Pizzagate was that there was quote, too much evidence to ignore, which is just, yeah. I, that, some, of the, some of the stuff he thought was preposterous and so I remember talking to another player like about how I should how before it sort of blew up. I'm like I'm not sure how to address this in context of a tennis tournament. Can I say like Tennis Sangren, who believes that Hillary Clinton was involved in running a child sex ring out of a pizza restaurant, <laughs> holds for four three in the first against the team. <laughs> like that just be, it, was it two just, for three on break points in the second set. <laughs> it just it just seemed I don't know. It all seemed very odd. I, going I mean. I, I don't know. I, I, I hope that he has learned from this. I hope I hope that within in the deluge of of stuff that he got from this, that he can is able to sift out or people point him towards what valuable lessons there are to be learned and what to disregard because it'll be easy for someone like that. And as I've been on waves of different criticisms for various things also, um, not for necessarily social media behavior, but for general other stuff articles and whatnot you all know what i'm talking about <laughs> and it's easy to get to to cherry pick like the most ridiculous criticism and be like that's so stupid and like dismiss the whole thing yeah but there's legitimate when, when criticism there that you have to take to heart yeah, yeah when when there could be valuable lessons to be learned somewhere else in that in that pile of fried rice and don't just pick at the peas you know? no it's no it's true and and you know hopefully learn and, and you know i you know hopefully people judge him by 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 the person that he is and then and, and what he puts out there is is going to, I mean I think that deleting everything is is was stupid like own up to it own up to what you said um apologizing for a singular tweet you know the homophobic tweet is not enough to me and that was strangely like endorsing every other tweet yeah you just apologize exactly for one. you know and and yeah. like I said I've been in that position where you say something that's totally completely unforgivable but as somebody who understands and and once it was brought to my attention like oh that's so unacceptable it's like beyond the pale like you accept that and and your response exactly that is it's unacceptable and and there's no there's nothing that you can say or or do to take it back um and all you can do is try to like going forward be a better person and to prove that that person that said those things is not the person that you are and and so to that end, I mean, that that's only just to say, like, with, with Sangren, like, if if going forward, and he's going to be in main draws for the next 12 yeah. months. He's top 60 now. Yep. So he's going to be around. 
So, and what he does and who he chooses to be, um, or at least represent himself publicly, that that's up to him. And, and, and whatever he puts out there, I think that people are absolutely justified in judging. Sorry. I mean, social media is a choice. It, what you choose to put on Twitter is a choice. Yeah, it was all very public. It wasn't like we were anyone's rooting through his trash or like hacked into his email. Exactly. Yeah, we were saying that. Like nobody hacked it. Like that's that's no. what he wanted people to see. Like retweeting Breitbart articles or going back and forth with Tommy Lahren and Ben Shapiro. I mean, he wasn't hiding any of it. No. So so I yeah I I think it'll be curious to see how I'm not going to be at any tournaments he's at. I don't think for the next month or so. Cause I'm not doing any wells, but I'll be curious to see how what his i feel like he has to sort of pick a a path here and he can sort of double down on it and sort of embrace the you know fringe voices who were really excited to see him on board during the australian open or he can sort of try to swing more towards uh, a more normal spectrum of you know schools of thought and can we'll i just say how- though like one of the things that i found like very very not insulting, but like kind of just, I mean, insulting insofar as like it just was so disingenuous as to be offensive with respect to, to kind of how the intelligence that he thought that people had of just like this, this like absurd revisionist history of like, oh, I was like taking in both sides. Or just even the, even the past, that's definitely true because there definitely he was all one did side. Not. It's not but like also- he was retweeting Breitbart and Glenn Greenwald and like, you know, Slate and it wasn't like this wide swath of opinions that he seemed to be taking in. And I also thought that his initial answer where he sort of compared himself to somebody watching, passively watching a television channel Baloney. was very disingenuous. You um, are not passively watching anything on Twitter. No. Twitter is the ultimate in curation. You can lurk, but you, you, but you when, when you're, when you're clicking buttons and retweeting and liking and whatever, and follow if it was just him following people, I don't, that wouldn't have been an issue. No, exactly. I hundred percent. Who you follow is not is not um, indicative of things to yeah. me. That that's not enough to indict somebody. Follows are definitely not endorsements. But what he put in his, but what he, he put a disclaimer in his Twitter bio saying that retweets and likes are not endorsements. Like no, right? Sorry. Nobody has ever written that. that, that is, that will never true. hold up in court. That's not true. No. Because anything so. you retweet is like hmm, interesting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's plenty of stuff that I see on Twitter, even just like hilarious, like crass tennis jokes that I cannot like click on. Yes, exactly. I, might, I, I cannot retweet or like those things and like be a professional person in this world. I might giggle to myself. I might DM them to you and say, lol. But <laughs> that's about as far as I can go. You know. No, agreed. Agreed. Yeah. So yeah, and those are just tennis jokes. Those aren't Nicholas Fuentes holding his tiki torch. Uh so yeah, so that is the men's, men's tennis right now. Um, Can we talk time? about the ladies now? Because they had a yes. pretty good tournament. Yes, we, that was like one of our longer men's segments in a while. It was obnoxiously right. long, but it was fun. <laughs> All right. Um, speaking of, I don't know if obnoxiously long is the right word, but speaking of long, uh, Simona Hallett played quite a few intense matches in this tournament. Uh, she won 15-13 in the third over Lauren Davis in a match I thought would be good and was better than I expected. It was really good. Uh, she won 9-7 in the third in the semifinals against Angelique Kerber, and then she fell just short in just under three hours, 6-4 in the third to Caroline Wozniacki, who won her first Grand Slam, beating Halep in the final. What 
will be your takeaway from from this women's tournament which i just think first of all i thought it was so trolly of the, the women's tour to after everything that happened last year to start off this year with a number one versus number two slam final like of all the of all the options no one would have picked oh yeah it'll be it'll be chalk went one versus two standard standard where wta is at right now yeah so yeah no i i agree with you i 100 percent agree um my takeaway from this tournament um i feel really bad but my takeaway is that is the three semifinalists that were not caroline um so I, I was very impressed by, obviously, I, I think that the, I mean, it sounds like a weird thing to say because obviously Wozniacki, huge uh, accomplishment, winning her, fin- finally winning her, her maiden major, getting to number one, you know, um, consolidating what has been an incredible, uh, you know, 16, 18 months um, was great. And I can't, you know, dispute that. But I think that the winners of the tournament in terms of like, wow, like this person totally, because the thing about it is with Wozniacki is that like her winning the Australian Open really just confirms what I think many of us, or I don't know, maybe not many of us, I don't know, but at least for me, like we always kind of knew, which is that she is a, she's a player who has the ability to win a slam um, and she won it and so it doesn't necessarily confirm anything new to me so much as it confirms what I've always believed. Um, and it would have been a shame if she she, she finished her career having not won one. Um, so it, it just felt kind of like, yeah, that, that seems right. Like, whatever. Um, what Halep and Kerber did, um, I think, was incredibly in- impressive over the fortnight. I think that Kerber coming from where she was in 2017 and, and really genuinely flipping the page and playing the way she did and, you know, not just like rolling through people, which she did, you know, she dropped four games to Sharapova, which was the block. That was a beatdown. And it was a beatdown. It was a straight up beatdown. There's no way around it. Um, and then battling against Shay. And that is one of those matches where it's like Angelique Kerber of 2017 does not fight in that match. She gives up and she feels bad for herself, you know? And we forget that Kerber was a point away twice of being a finalist. Yeah. A point. You know, and, and who knows how things go if it's Angie versus uh for versus Caroline. I think uh Angie's eight and five against Wozniacki. So who knows? But yeah, so I, I was just incredibly impressed by Kerber's January. I was impressed by her fortnight in uh Australia. But Halep, I really do believe this is one of those tournaments where she she finally, for those who, who follow the tour, like on a weekly basis, you've seen this coming because those, those steps have been there ever since she split with Darren after Miami and they reunited in Madrid and, you know, the, the heartbreaking loss at the French Open final and then her speech saying, you know, we're just going to keep trying, we're going to just keep doing it and um, playing well, but the rug kind of getting pulled out from under her. But she was still fighting to kind of try to try and find that that spe- that that level within herself, finding it a bit in 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 Asia. So if you if you followed week by week, then it wasn't surprising. But for the people who just kind of parachute in at the biggest tournaments, I think that the Australian Open was a was very much a a watershed moment for 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 Halep observers. Where this entire narrative that has kind of this cloud that has followed her forever, which is she's too passive, she's not a big match player, she's soft, um, she taps out, 
all those sorts of things. She's underpowered, um, plays too defensive, everything. Over the course of two weeks, every one of those kind of like uh, biblical plagues <laughs> was kind of thrown at her. And she met the moment and, and she stood up and, and whether it was the, you know, she's a very, not a hypochondriac, but when things happen with her as somebody who covers her so much, like uh, physically, she, she really freaks out. And so for her to sprain her ankle as bad as she did in the first set, first match and to turn it around and keep playing and then be down against a really good Lauren Davis and not tap out and win that match. And, you know, Kerber again, like just really battling and same with Wozniacki up until the end. I mean, she hit 90, 90 combined winners against, against the two best counter-punching players, not named Simona Halep in Kerber and, and Wozniacki in the last two matches. I think that in a lot of ways, like Halep kind of changed people's opinions of her. And then, you know, obviously <laughs> landing in the hospital after that 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 uh that final she left it out there and so in that way i kind of feel like it was it was weirdly halep's tournament i think you're right i think that i think that you're i think that halep definitely proved more and probably gained more respect in sort of dis in disproving previous notions about her and saying you know not who we thought she was and just a lot tougher and a lot more impressive and going through gauntlets and even when I didn't mention the other matches she played, but the Iava match, yeah, you mentioned she rolled her ankle badly first round and then sort of kept, still had the fortitude to play through that and to turn around the next match. She got lucky in the next round that she got Jeannie Bouchard, who was not playing well at all, and gave her kind of a uh, a soft pass through that match when she really might have been her most vulnerable yeah, in terms of the ankle and, and uncertainty about it. Um, but then she plays Davis in, in this delirious 15-13 match where they both played really well. Um, there were some, a lot of long, great rallies as she wins that. And then she rolls Osaka and Pliskova in the next two rounds, which I thought both of them could be dangerous, but it was, a, it was an impressive tournament for a fast court tournament, like counterpunching and defense won out pretty routinely a lot, which was interesting. Yeah, true. Um, especially like the Kerber beating keys as easily as she did was the one that really, I didn't see, I didn't see that scoreline coming for sure. And we need to talk about those two, but, but Wozniacki on the other hand, didn't have, had a, pretty easy draw for sure on paper to the final playing Carla in the, in the quarters and then Elise Mertens in the semifinals um, both players who she was expected to beat and then did beat um, and then she when she beat Halep it was her first ever top five win at a slam which is an amazing such a crazy stat for someone, stat, yeah. for someone who had spent that long uh, on top of the game and Caroline didn't feel like it was anything we didn't know about her she didn't do anything that was like wow I don't that's not a Caroline I've seen before in a way that I think a lot of people felt the way about Halep, but it was, it was impossible not to feel happy for her because she has been one of those best to never win a slam players for so long. And we just haven't seen those players late in their careers. And as late as what, she's 28 now, uh, she's 28, 20. I think she's still 27, actually 27. Okay. Whatever age she was, usually we haven't seen the first slams for like really good, consistently good players come that late, like Yankovic, Dementia, Denara, and I'd say Yankovic. I, I I don't know what her career looks like right now. She's been hurt. I'm not sure if she's playing again anytime soon. I'm not sure if she's contending for slams again. We haven't seen those players kind of have their moment late, and so I was just sort of, in some ways, it's bittersweet because you wish that all those players who put in a lot of good, great years uh, could have gotten that moment, but to see Caroline at least get it. And have one, you know, this person who sort of was synonymous with the word slamless in WTA vernacular um, 
for her to get through it and to sort of change her her headline and to become a sort of Hall of Fame lock suddenly was was just it was cool to see that her things fall for her that way and gosh was she happy to talk about Daphne and show off Daphne <laughs> at any as much as possible which you can't hardly begrudge her. Yeah, no, I I agree with all of that. All of that. I think that, like I said, I mean, there, there's nothing to begrudge Caroline Wozniacki, and I think that when I say that I'm not impressed by what she did over the Fortnite, I mean that as a compliment. Yeah. Um, I mean that as like this is something that I would have thought would have happened, you know, six years ago, seven years ago. Um, except that she ran up against like Kim Clijsters and she ran up against Serena. Um, uh, fair enough. You know, she had those match points against Lena, but she would have play, played Kim here. Yeah. Um, so the, when the draw came out, I think everybody knew that the bottom half of the draw was softer. Mm-hmm. That's where Caroline ended up. The only real landmines in that entire half of the draw for Wozniacki were really Pavlyuchenkova, who was a potential quarterfinal opponent, I think. Um, Gerges, who would have been a potential semifinal opponent. We know that Yulia is still the only player that's beaten her this year. Yeah. Um, having done so, Vandaway was probably in there. Vandaway was in there, yeah. I mean, I think Coco losing was a shock, uh, but I think those Venus were the... maybe. Yeah, but I think that people kind of realized that was a tough first rounder. Yeah. Maybe Bench if she makes it that far, but but there weren't that many landmines, and I think that from I mean, I I was incredibly impressed by by Mertens's tournament, oh, yeah. uh, because she's she's been quite soft, I think, as a competitor before, but she really fought through and. Made it there, got Caroline nervous, and that's late in that second set. And who knows? She had set points to force a third. Um, who knows? It could have been Halep Mertens in that third round. I mean, because the thing about Wozniacki's Fortnite is, in the grand scheme of things, I wasn't all that impressed. Like, I mean, she obviously was one five down to Yana Fett had to in the second round, had to save two match points, that and really was that was Fett collapsing. Yeah, that's true. That wasn't. That it was different than than for example Halep uh, against Davis or well, even Halep did... against Ayava. Like yeah. she had to like reel it in. Fett just kind of completely collapsed. Um, right after she, we thought that she hit an ace at that forty fifteen. Oh my point. god! It was like it looked like she did. It looked out. like it was over. And yeah, Caroline was, said the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Caroline was like, I thought the match was over. Yeah. So so that was Fett in the second round. Caroline had no business going to a third set against Carlos Suarez Navarro in the quarters. Um, she was in full control of that match, and she got nervous or something, and uh, Suarez Navarro was able to force a third. Semifinal, got... again, uh, Mertens had set points, I think two or three in the second. Um, and Caroline, to her credit, like sealed herself and got that win in straight sets. But And again, against Halep, I mean, go back and watch the final game of that match and tell me that that match couldn't have gone the other way. Mm-hmm. Like, that backhand that Waz hit at 30-all, like, pulled wide, and she hit, like, a sharp... It, it was stunning, and it was barely in. That is a that is a shot that should either hit the net or sail, like, a foot out. And, some, and she hit it. Um, you know, Halep hit her first double fault of the entire match, like, at 30-15 at, uh, to go to 30-all. Like, they were, they, the margins were so small. Um, it could have gone either way. So... It wasn't like to me the most impressive tournament from Waz, but I'm 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 happy that she no longer has to answer that question. <laughs> yeah, and, and and as you can attest, she's been very, 
she had <laughs> reached her fill of that question for sure, even just during this tournament. Oh, for uh, sure. Yeah. On the way to the final. Like, what would it mean for you to win a slam and how would it change your career? Um, and, and she got it. And yeah, it's, it's, it's impossible not to feel happy for her just as an athlete, as someone who's been an incredibly hard worker this whole time. And it's never and professional really, and, and, and yeah. very supportive of the WTA. And all of her, all of her errors have been like her sort of flaws have been like tactical. And they're even definitely shades of that against Carla and yeah. Mertens where she would she go fell a little into bit a back shell. into that shell yeah. and get too passive. And we saw that creeping up a little bit against Halep. Both of them were playing yeah. better from behind the whole, most of the match. That match, the final should have never gone to a third. Yeah. Waz should have finished that off in two straight sets and mm. somehow she went away from a game plan or got tired or got tight, whatever, in the second. But um yeah, no, I mean it's you can't you can't be mad about Caroline Wozniacki's slam champion. No, and I I don't think any I don't I think everybody that's what was cool again about this the we talked about before about people being really down on the men's tournament. People were up on the women's tournament and there was as much like buzz and like Ex, like oh who you got and like people breaking down what they thought was gonna happen in that final like the the, the during the day saturday as i've ever seen for any slam final it was and that really it was a weird. women's final between two then slamless players was was pretty cool and it, it just really it, it was just it was it was a satisfying tournament i mean it's it's just something that makes sense and she's and she also has been building to it winning singapore and yeah. having the breakthrough come afterwards it, and making a final in auckland and like I think you, people pointed out, uh, a lot of the players who had done well, did well in Melbourne, were players who'd already won titles in, tw- at least made finals in twenty seven eighteen already. You know, Kerber, Kerber won Sydney and and gone also additionally undefeated in Hopman Cup and uh, Halep won Shenzhen and Mertens won Hobart. You know, the these se- are the four semifinalists combined had one loss. That loss was Caroline to to Gerges. So. Yeah, no, it, on all, it, I, I'm not going to lie. I mean, it was a very weird tournament because. There wasn't chaos. There wasn't chaos. And also there Outside wasn't, of the first, like, there few wasn't hours. this sense yeah. that you felt like you had to, for me, uh, defend the tour. It, it felt like, you know, for the first time in many, many slams, and, and it's not about what actually happened to slams, because I will argue again, uh, going back until last year's Australian Open, so the last, like, four slams, that the women's tournament was better than the men's. Mm -hmm. I absolutely will argue that. It was better at the U.S. Open with, like, Petra and Muguruza and Venus and and Sharapova Halep and Sharapova Savastava, you know, there Savastava. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Key Svitolina, Savastava, uh, Sloan. There there were so many great matches. Yeah. There were so many great matches at the U.S. Open compared to the men. Um, Wimbledon, you had the entire Conta run of, of against Vekic, against uh, Garcia, uh, against Halep winning in a third set tiebreak. Um, you had Muguruza uh, uh, Kerber uh, that year, Halep uh, Azarenka. There were so many great matches um, at, at Wimbledon compared to the men. Uh, the French Open, the women's tournament was amazing because of Yelena Ostapenko. I mean, like she, what she did and what Halep did as well. Was and the whole tournament having eight women in the quarterfinals who'd never won a slam before. Yeah. And just sort of, and how that that excitement, and even of those eight, I don't think anybody was picking Ostapenko once they got there. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Probably true. And then you go back all the way to the Australian Open where you're like, oh, the men's tournament was better. But you're talking about a tournament where Serena Williams played Venus Williams to break the record. The open air, and, and you're saying the men are better. I'm not saying the and men Luchich. weren't better. 
and Lucic, you know what I mean? Like it, but like that's the standard that, that the girls have brought. Yeah. For 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 twelve months. And I, I I think that I think that and people I can I've saw some of this on Twitter too. People pushing like, why does it matter? Like, why are you saying, you know, it matters that the women are doing better because there are still people on this. You know, I don't want to get too much into the union stuff, but there are still people who are still trying to tear down women's tennis there are people trying to be down on women's tennis as venus would say and and people still saying they don't serve equal prize money or they need to play best of five for equal prize money because god knows what we need is more bloated diluted matches that never get to the damn point (laughs) um what we the women have sort of it sounds stupid to say they have to it's like oh are there you know funny female comedians but the women have absolutely proven their value and their intrinsic you know worth to this these grand slam events and to combined events beyond a shadow of a doubt in this in this past year yeah i mean the 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 success of the women um over the last 12 months of the slams in terms of the the quality of the the ladies tournament has been overshadowed by the fact that you are the tournaments on the men's side have been won by two of the game's greatest and most loved beloved right Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean for the two weeks it was great like just because like roger rolled or rafa rolled it doesn't mean that like the entire two weeks was like lovely i mean the U.S. Open, the only Serena rolls a lot of boring tournaments. Right, the U.S. Open, the only match I remember is being like, ah, was Del Potro team, mm. <laughs> which was just stupid. <laughs> which was just dumb. It should have never gotten to that point, honestly. Um, so yeah, I mean, and, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, there is that chorus, and it's always going to be that chorus. It's the chorus that I hear and all the time. Um, and that the female players definitely hear. Yeah, that, that, that they're lesser and that they don't bring value. And that's what they're told. And, you know, some of these women, because they're told it by their coaches, because their coaches are former ATP players or, you know, men or whatever, mm-hmm. and tell them that they're lesser. Like, I just, I just reject all of that. Like, it's the women have had stronger tournaments or at least as strong. Um, you know, if you go back to the Australian Open of 2017, uh stronger or at or as strong for the last like 12 months yeah and i'm not entirely sure until this tournament this year that that has actually been recognized at all because for whatever reason because like oh because sloan rolls madison you completely discount what happened the two weeks before that seems dumb Mm. um uh, it had been, it hadn't been a couple. It had been a couple not great finals. Yeah, Wimbledon because finals. it was great for a set, and then Muguruza ran away ran away with it against Venus. But that doesn't negate two weeks of better and more. You know, Conta. Con, I mean, the ratings in Britain were higher for the women than they were for the men. Mm-hmm. You can talk about oh, Conta, but the fact is, it is what it is. The content was bringing in numbers that the, 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 the guys that the Roger and Chilich were not bringing. But no, this is never discussed. Oh, the ladies are second-class citizens and should be thankful for what they get. Baloney. And this is, this is the trend, though, right? Like, the only reason, not only reason, but the big, the, a significant reason as to why the men are in the conversation is because of Roger and Rafa, who are not going to be around all the time. No. Meanwhile, for the girls, you're talking about Ostapenko, you're talking about Muguruza, um, you're talking about Sloan, if you look at Slam Champions, you know? And they're going to be around for the, for a while. 
like this compare it just doesn't make sense like in I don't know it's frustrating it's very very frustrating so this was the first as I was saying like this is the first slam that I felt like in a while where not for a single day did I feel like I was on the defensive where I had to explain the result yeah no it's it, I I've, I've felt kind of the same way and having a one versus again having a one versus two final in a women's slam after how 2017 went and how close the top of the rankings were and how everything how ostapenko how we had two of the last three slams were won by unseated players um for it to suddenly go one versus two was just very trolly of the tour and in a way that i appreciate we do we do what we do we do what you do uh yeah so that was the women's uh tournament any other thoughts on Australia in the term before we wrap up. Um, how about a shout out for Shea Suwei? Oh my gosh, she was the best. <laughs> she was the best. Her two matches that I watched, um, I actually didn't even watch what I'm sure was her amazing match against Zhu Lin that was six loves, love six, eight oh, six. Oh yeah, like I that. completely that forgot that. That was her first was her, match. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure that was Cray in its own ways, but her match against Radvanska, a couple of those points were absolutely insane. The whole match was just so fun. Um, and then her match against Kerber, she was playing so well against Kerber. It was like Kerber was like not playing bad and couldn't do anything. And yeah. I feel like Kerber eventually kind of derailed Shea a bit into trying to going a little bit of into a hitting match. There's like trading baseline, whatever. And Shea didn't quite have as creative a touch when it got tighter. Um, and credit to Kerber for outlasting her because that looked like absolute hell what Shay yeah, was putting it really through for the first part of that it match. did yeah it was so like there were i mean to, to quote sloan stevens some of the shots were just disrespectful <laughs> <laughs> she was hitting well well played i mean it was it was really it was really something pretty pretty remarkable no shacy um, way's tournament was bananas like go back to like how she dismantled muguruza how she yeah. dismantled bravanska and how she pushed uh kerber to three it was dope as hell, and, and you just want, you know, like, I had to stop myself from asking her after press conferences, like, like, can you keep doing this? Like, because it would be amazing if you could. It Yeah, it really is, and, and it's all just, like, it's, I hadn't been following, tracking her results much before the tournament. It seemed kind of out of nowhere, even though I've known, but her clearly her ranking, she hasn't been directed into that all single slams lately, so that she was directed into this one means that she must be doing something right. Yeah, it's just so it's it's weird to think of how tennis that bizarre is sustainable. It's a it's a weird it's a weird she just throws very weird equations in it, and she, in all the best ways, is a delightfully just weird person to be around. She just like the way she answers questions and just talks <laughs> about things. She is like you just do not know what you're gonna get with Shay Suway, and she's uh, one of the things that makes. And I think we talked with this about Mary Carillo on the on episode two hundred, our last show, about how tennis is cool because you can do so many different things that like work and that like Shea Suwe's brand of, you know, four slices and two handed whatever's and chips and dinks and stuff. And just sort of maddening drop shots from behind the baseline that that can pay off and that can succeed against Kerber, who was the tournament favorite for almost point, the whole yeah. tournament. Yeah. Like she wasn't, yeah, she wasn't until she got eliminated. I think um, she, uh, that that works is, extraordinary and it was just it was a very cool moment for tennis and that it was on a big stage that she got to do that and be at her peak shayness because she's had some good wins lately i mean she she beat uh maybe people didn't think much of it because of conta's record there but she beat conta first round of the french open last year 
it was a decently sizable win, but she that, nearly knocked out after that uh, Caroline Garcia. Garcia. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, she she's she's been kind of trending up, and I hope that she keeps doing it and keeps inspiring people because man, when she's on, like it it's is, a beautiful thing. It is wonderful, disrespectful but beautiful. All the dis all the disrespect in the world. Yeah, no, she was she was great and. Um, so yeah, so I just wanted to make sure that Shea Suwei got some love. Marta Kostyuk was an absolute breath of fresh mm. air. Um, loved her run. Qualifier, Ukrainian, 15-year-old. Uh, third youngest player to win a match at the Australian Open, I think. Yeah, Kostyuk, Kostyuk was impressive. I will say this on Kostyuk. Kostyuk got a very easy draw. For sure. She but 15 years Shui old. And then Rogowska. And so, yes, yeah, so she does all these superlative things age-wise. And she is does seem like a player not 15. I yeah. just, I want to really pump the brakes and like expecting more from her at this oh, for level sure. soon. Even though she yeah. did do really well too. I think her qualifying run was actually arguably more impressive than her main draw wins because um, she beat some pretty decent players and qualies. Um, but then she got a couple gifts in the uh, in the main draw. But she yeah she was just like and you did a I don't know if you did an article if it wasn't a podcast right but she just like she's got a lot of a lot of moxie that kid yeah she was, exactly she was fun to be around no the kids are. Especially on the WTA side, they're interesting. I mean, between her and Potapova and, uh, yeah, those those teenagers, they're they're growing up quick. But, yeah, no, Kostiak was great. She was, she was a cool story. Um, uh, Bernarda Pera? Hey, yeah, that was that one that was out of nowhere, too. random. Pera, Bernarda Pera, who's an American, um, who we really didn't know much about Na- at all. Nationalized American. Yeah, she she's recently, relative, I mean, she was, I, think, I don't know if she was born a citizen, but I think her dad... She's Croatian. She had grown up in Croatia and is now back living in Croatia um, and training there with her coach um, in, uh, what's the town? Uh, Zadar, I think, uh, in Croatia. And she's, yeah, she played really well. And she was one of those players when you watched how cleanly she was playing. She was like, why have I not heard yeah, of you exactly. when you can play this well? And she, like, beat Kanta, who wasn't playing badly. And Kanta, who has just has become one of my sort of favorite press room people in terms of just being level-headed and normal reliably um was like yeah she was like too good and didn't get like freaked out about the fact that she lost to a player ranked a lucky loser ranked 140 whatever um it was she just played very good looking sustainable tennis i did not see her next match against stritzova that she lost i didn't see any of that match but um she looks like someone who can absolutely become a solidly top 100 player yeah yeah yeah. It was definitely one of those performances where you're like, you should at least be top 100. I don't know past that, like, what your situation is, but... We have no yeah, idea about her consistency or anything. Exactly, yeah. but but she was definitely, like, one of those where you're like, yeah, no, you're a top 100 player. I don't I don't get why that's not happening. Uh, so, yeah, so that was good. Svitolina. I know you oh, have yeah. some thoughts. Yeah. So, Svit- Svitolina, I, well, let me just take it right to this way. We talked a little bit, I think, on Twitter... <laughs> maybe in person also, about the comparisons between her and Sasha Zverev. Um, That's you. I don't think I've talked to you about it, but yeah. Okay. Um, well, I, I, was t- I was talking to you, remember, we talked a bunch in Brisbane, I think, before the show, about how we were debating if her, like, slam mental block oh, is real or not. Right, yeah. And I was definitely saying that it was. Because I remember just, I remember when she, when I did a one-on-one with her after she won Brisbane, we were talking about Australia, and she just sort of just, like, already got, like, nervous-looking talking about the slam stage and how like she wasn't sure things would translate and i just like especially in women's tennis where you're playing best of three at both she just won brisbane which is like one of the most loaded wta tournaments there is 
like I just I something's gotta I I don't know if she just needs to have a good slam run for it to happen if she can't I don't think she's good at like faking the swagger that she should be able to like it's all like kind of she can't bs her way into a slam with like yeah, false I bravado mean, when I, she doesn't have a great slam and even and even if her slam record as you might point out if we go to Zverev is better than Zverev she's made like three quarterfinals and Zverev's made zero but like this sort of constant I don't know the underachievement and like sort of why can't you do what you do at tour events at slams I think they're very one-to-one for me on that I mean I would accept the criticism that um she has underperformed if I felt like she was performing um or had the potential to perform at her best here but I do think that, like, overlooked in the Svilina narrative for 2018 Australian Open is that, like, she wasn't healthy. Yeah, she had a hip injury. Yeah. yeah from the but, from the start. But I will so, say, and yeah, but I will say, though, she just played, like, so tight against Mertens. She was just, like, hitting the ball, like, to the middle of the court constantly. Yeah, but 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 this goes with a little bit of, of kind of, like, um, what, who was it that said it? Uh, yeah, I think it was Halep. He said, like, you know, you you can want to do other things, but if your body doesn't let you, then it is what it is. So I'm a little bit more inclined to kind of, like, give her, give uh, uh, Spinalina the benefit of the doubt to be like, okay, you you were hurt, so I'm not going to, like... I, I, I'm willing to asterisk that, the term. Yes. Because she did that, mention the, the injury before... Yeah, know, from early, the start. Several rounds earlier. Exactly. Yeah. So... Now, if she goes, for example, into the Middle East, where she's defending Dubai, um, and plays crap, or or she's fully healthy and she does what she did, you know, last year at the, the French Open and kind of chokes a lead, then absolutely, like that's where you're like, mm, something's gone wrong and you need to fix it. Um, but is there much to extrapolate from Melbourne from Svitolina? I I don't know. I just think there's a pattern with, like, the U.S. Open loss and the French Open loss. I think she's just taking bad L's. Yeah, no, I'm not saying that those ones from last year were not bad losses. I mean, I think that she will be the first to admit they're bad losses. I'm just saying Mm -hmm. that, like, you know, she started, she turned the page, she started the year, she she won Brisbane, got great wins over Conta and Pliskova um, to to win that title. Um, I would have liked to have seen her full force playing Melbourne and then gauge off that but knowing that she wasn't a hundred percent like I'm less inclined to be like oh same old fits you know yeah as, as I, he- I, he- I hear you I just thought that she was like even if she was like if she was I believe that she was hurt um she still played like tactically dumb like if you if you're if your hips are hurting and you can't move well be more aggressive not less aggressive okay that's fair I, I don't argue with that that's fair it's yeah. a fair critique sure um anyhow that is probably enough we've done a lot of show it is very late where you are i should let you sleep 4 30 4 30 yikes um but yeah it probably starts earlier because indoor tournaments tend to start early no one oh that's not too bad one four matches i should be done by like 10 oh not bad very very civilized very civilized those russians uh thank you guys for listening to no challenges remaining if you want to follow along when you're not listening you can do so by liking us on facebook facebook.com slash ncr podcast follow us on twitter at ncr underscore tennis uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and whatever podcast app you like. We're both on Overcast users these days. It's been swell. Uh, if you have questions for an upcoming show, email us, no challenges remaining at gmail.com. Uh, do you have 
rants, raves, Courtney? Sure. Yeah. Um, as people have noticed, um, I would absolutely put a rave into St. Petersburg as a city. I think that mm-hmm. everybody should visit, visit it. It's great. Um, I also want to give a, a quick rave to uh, Uniqlo and Super Dry because y'all have saved my ass because <laughs> uh, per your recommendation, actually, Ben, of like making sure that I bought like long underwear. Oh, good. Um, to, to when I came to St. Pete. Uh, so I did because Uniqlo had some um and it's been an absolute lifesaver so that's been great uh and then super dry i got like a great jacket for like a hundred bucks and it's been tremendous uh so nice definite shout outs to those two brands uh logan lucky amazing movie everybody should see it and i watched it on the plane too did you like it i did like it yeah i thought it was i thought i agree with you like adam driver was by far the best part for sure of that movie um yeah it was, yeah, it's it was, great. It was it, it's a redneck Ocean's Eleven. Exactly. Um, so so it's great. Um, uh, unfortunately, on the same flight, I watched the worst movie that I've seen probably in five years, uh, which was so sad, uh, which was um, Kingsman Golden Circle. Don't watch that oh, movie. Oh, and you liked the first one. I freaking love Kingsman. Like, I really do. And I, I like the guy that plays Eggsy, and it has Colin Firth, and this one had Julianne Moore um, and Channing Tatum. Like everything I should love about it, and it was so so terrible that like forty five minutes into it, I was just like, oh, I, I can't watch this anymore. And I watched the whole thing, and it's not a short movie; it's like two hour, two hours fifteen maybe. Uh, mm. don't watch it. Don't watch Kingsman Golden Circle. Wait for it. Go watch Baby Driver instead. Yeah, that that that's what I've got. Oh, and um, this one episode or two episodes, two podcasts that I really really enjoyed last week. Uh, one was an episode of the Daily, the New York, which I love, the New yeah. York Times podcast, the Daily, which is a daily podcast that kind of keeps you up to date. As one who travels a lot and can't read everything, keep keeps you in the know of of what's happening back stateside. Anyway, it's really good. It's really really good. Um, and they had an episode on Tanya Harding. I would highly recommend you listen to it, regardless of how you feel about her. Oh, with Tiffany Ackner, right? Yeah, he's like I I think Tanya Harding's trash, and I don't like her. Um, and I think this whole weird celebratory thing that's happening because of the movie is stupid because at the end of the day, she did participate in the <laughs> literal kneecapping of a competitor, but but the podcast is worth, worth listening to. Um, and then the other podcast that I really enjoyed was uh, 99% Invisible, had a great podcast about air conditioning. Mm. It's called Thermal something uh, a few weeks ago. It was really, really eye-opening. It's about basically how... Air conditioning was invented, how it has affected architecture going forward, because so much classical architecture has been built around the idea of, like, you need to keep people cool. And then once AC was invented, they kind of were like, oh, we don't have to do that anymore. Um, So, yeah, it was was really interesting. Really enjoyed it. So those are my raves. No rants. I'm not angry. It's good. You did kind of rant about Kingsman. but Oh, Kingsman uh, was terrible. I will say on the air conditioning front, like, my apartment – in Melbourne where I stayed for three years does not have air conditioning. What? I didn't really realize that until Until the last two days, until the last like two (laughs) nights in the night, especially like the last night when by the time you were gone, like it never got below like, I don't know, like 32 Celsius at night, (sighs) which is like 87 maybe. And it was just really gross. And trying to sleep in that weather was 
not happening. Um, Do you remember when I got super sick in Australia and it was like literally at night? So Ben and I were sharing a room Mm -hmm. uh, at the Milk Bar in Abbotsford in Melbourne. Which was lovely. Yeah, which was the year that was like 120 degrees in in Melbourne. And I got horribly ill. And and Ben got back. I left site early. And I went back and I was lying in bed. And I was literally wearing like a North Face Summit Series down jacket under blankets in about 100 degree nighttime weather and shivering. Yeah. I was like genuinely scared that night, honestly. You, yeah. You were okay by the next morning, is that right? I'm trying to remember how it all played out. I think the next morning I was okay. But I think like like that night, I literally was like, Ben, can you please get me a glass of water? Because I'm like, not well. Which is like, <laughs> not something I would ask Ben to do. But anyway, I was happy. I'm sure I was happy to do it. I was. Oh, you were ecstatic. But I was just like, I was like, <laughs> I was like, shiver. I was like shivering in like 110 degree weather. It was nuts. Yeah. So my own rave will just be it's. Um... I'm not, I think you covered stuff. I didn't get to watch too many movies on the plane. I watched Foxcatcher, which I was sort of like, I expected to like Foxcatcher a lot, and I didn't really. I just thought it was, I don't yeah. know, never really sure like what it, what the point was. Agreed. Or I kept, I kept waiting for like something to happen. Obviously, something does happen in the other movie, but it wasn't like, I don't know, the buildup I just thought was like, maybe that's how real life works, and real life isn't always like making a lot of sense, but I just didn't see why it had to be a movie that was focused that way um and they're like for points where like i thought it was going somewhere and it wasn't anyway i found it frustrating movie that came out four years ago (laughs) you have already uh you know not it's not a very current uh reaction to anything um i'll just rave that i am very excited about this story i'm working on which courtney knows i'm working on (laughs) and i'm excited for the world to see it because it has been uh a labor of love and of just sort of like confusion confusion (laughs) and exasperation and shock and amusement significant amusement and it's you know it's it's multimedia and i'm excited for it man i genuinely am and i never read shit that you write so thanks thanks i'm gonna read this one right you've seen (laughs) and you've seen you've seen like some of the visual stuff yes the story and it is it is something so (laughs) Yeah, so yeah. that's that. Um, it'll be up so hopefully by the you know within a few days this episode coming out. So it's hopefully not too much of a of a tease. I've just been bursting at the seams with with sort of feelings about it. So I had to share. Uh, Fair. Can I can I give it. like a like a one last thing that might yeah. tie into an outro? Yeah. You guys, okay. So I'm I'm a California kid. So our weather does not ever get below. I mean, like it rains in California and people freak out. So like being in St. Petersburg when, like I said earlier, like I'm literally living in a snow globe. Like it's like constantly snowing. The snow is like super pure, like white, like not like really effed up with like, I don't know. It's not like gross and dirty and wet the way that it Mm -hmm. can get in the States. Anyways, it's been like really, really lovely and just nice to kind of like be in this and like St. Petersburg, the Hermitage and the Winter Palace and everything is like. Did so you go beautiful. in? Will you go in? Please go in. To the Hermitage. Yeah. I will. Like, I mean, at this point, I mean, I need to get to the point where play starts later so that I can actually enjoy it, you know, because I have to be on site by one. So, mm. um, but yeah, so, so it's been really, really, really lovely. 
And as uh, Renee, our good friend, Renee Denfeld, Renaissance on Twitter, reminded me on Instagram today, like, I might as well listen to, like, uh, Arcade Fire's Neighborhoods Number 1 while I'm walking around the streets of, of St. Petersburg. And uh, I did that tonight, and it was awesome. So, just saying. That's a good song. That's it's a always good song. a good song. It's a good song. You don't really need an excuse to play Tunnels. Never. But we will play it for you anyway thanks guys for listening we will be back in some reasonable amount of time i hope enjoy the rest of your time in russia courtney thank you i will spasiba and and build a tunnel home from my window to yours ben exactly